Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Everson from Villanova University, and welcome to the Big East Rewind. The Big East Rewind came about when Sonny Sparrow and I from Syracuse University were on a recruiting trip and became friends, and we've been friends ever since. And we had a bond that has developed over playing in the very tough Big East Conference. The Big East Rewind is all about Big East basketball, old school style with the battles and stories that came about during our time playing in the Big East. From the perspective of the media, coaches, former players, and even officials. So we hope you enjoy the Big East Rewind. Hi, this is Chuck Everson for the Big East Rewind. On today's show, it'll be media day. We have two of the best journalists in the game today. We have Dick Hoops Weiss, the Hall of Famer. And Rich Samini, who started out in Syracuse, is going to talk about his time in the Big East and went all the way into the NFL with the New York Jets. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this edition of the Big East Rewind. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Chuck Everson, and welcome to the Big East Rewind with my host, the guy who's got Julius Irving's nickname and wears Michael Jordan's number, Sonny Sparrow from Syracuse University. How are you today, Sonny? I'm good. You had a busy day thinking of all that, huh? I had, Listen, you know what? I got to do something different each time, Sonny, you know, and it's it's not easy. It's not easy. Keeping I, it fresh. Keeping it fresh. Today. That's good. <laughs> I try to keep it lively, buddy, you know? There you go. I'll try to keep so, up. So today... As you, as you well know, today is media day. Now, you remember those days when you were playing at Syracuse Media Day? I do. When we I got do, interviewed yeah. by hordes of guys that uh, from the oh. newspapers and stuff and uh, got, to, got to talk about the upcoming season and stuff. Well, today it's media day, only it's for the media guys. We get to stand behind the microphone today, and those guys get to stand in an uncomfortable position in front of the microphone. So why, oh, don't, you, why don't you introduce Put them on the hot seat. Guests. All right. All right. Well, our first guest, you got a lot of people. First of all, a lot of people are going to know both our guests today, which is Absolutely. great. But Rich Samini is a classmate of mine from Syracuse. Went to this, went to school the same four years when we were the Orange Men before we became the Orange, and was a reporter for the Daily Orange, which is a big time uh, school newspaper. He went on, and he was also working at the Syracuse paper at the same time because he likes to keep, you know, keep things lively. Then he has evolved to the Newsday on Long Island and then the Daily News. And then in 2010, he's at ESPN. He is the official writer and voice of the Jets. And we're going to no Sam Darnold questions. I promise you, Rich. Uh, welcome, Rich, to the program. Well, thank you. It's so great being here with you guys. And of course, with my former Daily News colleague, Dick Weiss, who's, who's a legend. And it's always great to be in his presence. Right. And th thank you for that intro, Rich, because as, as I was about to say, also joining us, the legendary sports writer, the National Sports Media Hall of Famer, the guy that's been to 47 straight Final Fours and one of the 47 best straight. One of the best and guys I know. Getting older, Sonny. Nick Hoops Weiss is with us. How are you, Hoops? Oops. It's good to see you both. How are you guys doing? Well, we're doing great. Good to see you, as always. Hey, it's a little switch. I like this, Dick, interviewing you for a change. Hey, listen, whatever you need, Chuck. <laughs> you know, I, I, I love the fact that you cared so much about that 85 team that you constantly organized reunions between them and Rolly. It was that made it special because you kept the uh, tradition alive. Yeah, thanks, Hoops. I appreciate you saying that. 
they got a good family atmosphere and, and uh, you can tell it was established and it continues. Certainly does. So why don't we jump in guys, you know, hoops, I'll start with you first. And uh, where, how did you decide back in, you know, I guess it would be high school or college where you decided you wanted to be uh, a writer. You know, when I was 10 years old, I started taking the subway down to the University of Pennsylvania to watch games at the Palestra. Used to have college doubleheaders down there. And I think I must have gone to every doubleheader from the time I was an eighth grader all the way through my first five or six years in the business and got a chance to see a lot of local kids play. Used to have double headers every Wednesday, every Friday and every Saturday uh, that included teams like Villanova, Temple, LaSalle, St. Joe's and Penn. Um, the teams at the time when I was uh, starting to grow up were all local kids. So I became an instant fan of the sport because they had great coaching and they had teams that were nationally competitive long before the Big East started. It just was a natural uh, transition for me. I, I love being at the games. I figured I might as well get paid for it. <laughs> yeah, good thought. How about you, Rich? Now, Rich, you and I know each other since high school. Yeah. My, my kids go to your alma mater, or they did, at Sachem. And uh, if I recall, we had a few softball games against each other because at Brentwood, we had a radio station and at Sachem, we, we had a radio station and we were both involved with that. Right. Yeah, it's amazing. Like we had a uh, softball game, our radio station against the Brentwood radio station. And that's really when I first met you, Chuck. Yep. And then I did some covering some high school basketball, uh, you know, for locally and a Sachem, of course, played Brentwood a couple of times. And that's when I first, you know, saw you play. And then, you know, when I got to Syracuse, you know, the thing to do was to cover basketball because it was easily the number one sport. And, to, you know, I had a chance to do it, as Sonny mentioned, with the Daily Orange and later the Post Standard and really covered a lot of Big East stuff with Newsday and even the Daily News. And that was my favorite time. You know, I, I eventually transitioned into the football thing and NFL, and that's what I've been doing for so long. But I did so many Big East tournaments at the Garden, and some of my fondest memories in, in journalism are, are covering Big East stuff. Yeah, we're gonna dig. We're gonna dig into some of that stuff um, as we go forward. But I just, we, we I think we just want to get a take a feel for how you guys, you know, how you got your first your first spot, Dick. Why don't you go first? How you got your first job and and. And where it went from there. Tell take us on your path a little bit before we. I I, I was undergraduate at Temple. I played soccer. I keep telling people I was a bad goalie on a great soccer team. We played in the NCAA tournament. I was the uh, sports editor of the local of the of the uh, of the daily paper at, at Temple, and uh, I covered basketball there. Uh, I was a journalism major. I. Uh, actually covered the Temple team that won the NIT in 1969 when Harry Litwack was still the coach and John Baum was a big star. Uh, I got to know a guy named Chuck Newman who uh, worked as an official and worked as a sports writer for the Baltimore Sun. He hooked me up with an interview. Three days after I graduated, I'm working for the Baltimore Sun. That job lasted all of three months before they went on strike, went to Trenton for a half year, went to Camden for a year, then went on to Philadelphia uh, 
And I uh, got there in 1974 and was there to 1993. Never thought I'd leave. And then I got a call from the uh, folks at the Daily News. They offered me, in my mind, the dream job. It was a chance to cover national college basketball and national college football. And I, I know I spent a lot of their money. <laughs> Rich probably yeah, that it was when we went. It was a it was a great paper. I mean, it had a, a million circulation, and uh, uh, if the Yankees won a playoff game, the circulation would go up another hundred thousand. So, I mean, it was great. I, I think everybody's dream when they grow up is uh, to work for a New York paper. If you're in journalism, back then it was the thing to do, and uh, they hardly ever said no to me. They pretty much sent me anywhere I wanted to go, and. For 21 years, I thought I had uh, as good a job as there was in the country. So, Rich, let's get to you. Tell, tell me, when you got to Syracuse, when did you start, like, at the Daily Orange? What, what, when was it? Was it your sophomore year? When was the first year? Oh, no, the first day of my freshman year. Oh, uh, that's awesome. You know, I walked in, and <laughs> they were serving beer in the sports department at the Daily Orange. It used to be on the old Adams Street building. And I walked in and they had a keg of beer in the sports department. And I'm like, you know, sign me up. You know, this is what I want to do. Uh, you know, it was it was always what I wanted to do going back to high school, even junior high school. So I knew I was whether they had beer or not, I was going to join the Daily Orange and kind of work my way up. I covered soccer and, and wrestling and mm -hmm. then finally, you know, got the big promotion to cover basketball, which was, of course, the prime beat. You know, back in those days, it was. Uh, you know, Tony Bruin and Eric Sanifer and Leo Routens, you know, that that chart trio. Big three. You know, yeah. big three. And, uh, you know, just the, the, the personalities of the Big East were so were so dominant, especially the coaches. And then, you know, covered you, you know, and then Pearl comes along and, you know, kind of changed everything, I think, from a na national perspective in Syracuse. So I was really lucky to be around at a pretty cool time in Syracuse history. Well, talk, talk a little bit more about that. So Pearl comes in, right? And everybody knows, I mean, the, the flash, right? And, and just the, just everything that surrounded him, there was an aura, right? right. And you got a chance to, to talk to, talk to me about like when the big East you're in the, you're kind of in the, the birthing of the big East, the whole process, you're growing with it. Yeah. What did that mean to the university? What did you see as a reporter? What did you see that meaning to everything in Syracuse? I wish I had been there for Manly Fieldhouse. I, right. I know Dick, Dick was probably there. I, I never, you know, being that we got there at the same time, Sonny, we never were there for Manly Fieldhouse other than practices. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think I would have had a better appreciation because to go from that to the dome, at, and at the time, the, the dome was so transcendent. You know, it was, it was so unique and it was created such a national stir. I think it helped with their recruiting because they were on all over the country on ESPN a couple of times a week and that big building, 30,000 people they could fit in there. And it was such an attractive recruiting tool for them. And uh, so I was there for a bunch of that. And, uh, you know, Pearl, you know, Derek Coleman, we didn't mention him, but another great player. Mm -hmm. and so it was really neat. And of course, Jim Beheim, who's been there for forever, you know, had some ups and downs with Jim, you know, they looked, you know, sometimes, sometimes it was hot, sometimes it was cold, depending on the mood, but, uh, but I do have, not gonna let you off the hook with that one. <laughs> yeah, so, so mostly, mostly very fond memories of Jim. And I even got to know his dad a little bit. Cause I, I did a whole story on him growing up near Rochester and spent a day with his dad. 
before he passed away uh, years later. And so mm -hmm. I got, I really got into the whole Bayheim thing and I did a lot of stories on Pearl as well. So it was fun. Talk, talk about now as, as you're covering that, did you get a chance to do a lot of interaction and interviews with opposing teams? A little bit, you know, not a lot. Not I, as I much, right? My, my most memorable moment of interviewing an opposing player, and this is not really a Syracuse moment, but they had the regionals one year in the carrier dome and North Carolina, you know, Syracuse was not in it, you know, in that particular regional, but North Carolina was in the dome. And I don't even know who they were playing, but I remember covering one of their practices and Michael Jordan was either a freshman or a sophomore. And he was sitting off to the side in a chair near the court. And it was only me and one other reporter interviewing Michael Jordan, which of course, like who knew, right? I mean, he was a good player, but who knew what he would become? And we were interviewing him. And I remember Dean Smith, saying, you know, all right, blowing the whistle, saying practice was starting. And Michael stayed with us answering some more questions. And all of a sudden, and I'll always remember this, I hear Dean Smith from, from across the court yelling, Michael! And all of a sudden he popped out of his seat and he ran across the court into practice. And, you know, that was the end of our interview. And I have no idea what he was saying in that interview, but years later I could say it's pretty cool that I was interviewing Michael Jordan. Some of those clips were in the last dance. They showed him practicing. That was in the carrier dome. Yes, so I absolutely that remember that, that. And I, and I yeah. thought back to that day. So talk, talk a little bit before, before I, I can't let you go too quickly on this. So tell me a little bit, describe some of your great moments and you can describe some of your not great moments with coach B. Well, the not great moment, which was weird. I had got tipped off, um, that one of the player, a couple of players were transferring, uh, like sort of the bottom of the roster guys. Uh, they were O'Neill and uh, uh, Peter Wynn, maybe, or one of those, or a couple of six foot 10 guys were transferring. And I got tipped off by someone. And I actually went to their apartment and uh, talked to them in person as they were packing their apartment at Sky. I think it was George Papadakis. Yes, maybe it was that. Yeah. And so I have this exclusive for the Daily Orange. And I wrote the story with quotes from the players. And then the next day, Beheim calls the Daily Orange and I answer the phone and he just starts reaming me out for the story. And I didn't, I never to this day understood why he was upset because the story was accurate. It, I, I don't know why he was upset, but I just remember hanging up, you know, like my ears were still ringing because he was yelling so much at me. And uh, I was like, I, I never knew why, because it was, I could see if the story was wrong, but it was accurate. And, uh, and in terms of the good times, I think just sitting with Jim in a lot of one-on-one -on -one settings, talking about his family, uh, talking about his dad, uh, you know, just getting back stories about his childhood. You know, I don't know if you knew this, Sonny, but he grew up in a funeral home yeah, in, yeah. in a small town yep. in, in, in Lyons, New York. New yeah. York. And he told and actually talked to Dave Bing about this, another great Syracuse alum. And, you know, he said one time Jim invited a few players over to his house for Thanksgiving holiday. Yeah, yeah. And he, he said a bunch of us were sitting around the Thanksgiving table eating our turkey. And he goes, I'm looking around the corner. This is Bing talking. And he goes, I see all these caskets, these open caskets with dead bodies in them. And he goes, all the players were totally freaked out by it. He goes, but there was Jim totally at home, just like nothing was going on. Because that, that's what he was used to. Yeah. Well, at that time too, he had, uh, he had, he was married and he had the, his daughter. I remember that was a life-changing event for him. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, talk about family. I, yeah. I have on my wall, you can't see it. I have a picture of the front of the daily news the morning after they won the national championship against Kansas. 
And the Daily News has a great shot of Jim with his uh, oldest daughter, yep. you know, you know, kind of hugging each other. And it's on the back page of the Daily News. And I have it up on the yeah. wall, not, not far from where I'm sitting. It's a good moment. That was a good moment. Yeah, it was a great yeah. moment. To be so when you when you moved out, right, as, as you left there, you still were very well connected to the Biggies. What did the Biggies mean to you in terms of of its uh, its 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 aura? Like, what, what, what was you thinking? Yeah, I mean, to me, the, the, the pinnacle was this the tournament at the Garden every year. I yeah, mean, it's amazing. It, uh, I, I went to every game. They had all the different sessions. I, I would cover it in the morning. I would cover it at night. I, I worked for Newsday at the time. They were nice. Back when they had money to spend, they used to put me up at the Grand Hyatt in the city for a few nights, which made me feel really important, even though I wasn't, you know, and I was just having a blast covering all these games. And there was nothing like the electricity of walking into the garden, like for a Syracuse Georgetown game or, or a Syracuse Villanova or, or, or St. John's Syracuse, any of those rivalries walking in, uh, you know, during the Big East tournament and just feeling the electricity in the garden, which to me is still the greatest arena. That was something that's really hard to describe and very, very fond memories. Let me ask you one more question before, before we move to something else. In terms of interviewing other coaches, you talk about the tournament. Did you have any memorable moments with any of, because there's just legendary coaches fraught throughout Big East history and you've been at the garden. Yeah. You know, what was your experiences with some of them or if you want to share any moments or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I did some with Lou Carnesecca, you know, because I did some St. John's when I was with Newsday. I did one year doing some St. John's basketball and, you know, it was fun to be around Lou and uh, incredible guy. It, it was great. Uh, I, you know, just dealing with him, it, it was kind of a fun guy to be around. And uh, I actually did a story one year for Newsday just on all the Big East coaches and how, you know, sometimes they had their little you know, arguments and, you know, they had their little feuds that were going on every now and then, you know, I remember uh, Paul Evans from Pitt was kind of a controversial guy. He come in, came in, he was very outspoken. He spoke his mind. Raleigh was, you know, an outspoken guy and Thompson. And, and so it's, it's really heartwarming to me to see how their relationships evolved because back in the day, I don't know, Sonny, you would know better, but it seemed like Jim and John Thompson, maybe there was a little coolness there but now as they got older and especially, you know, as John, especially was in his latter years, you could just see a warming. There seemed to be a kinship there between Bayheim and Thompson that years ago, maybe their competitive juices wouldn't allow that, you know, they were just so fiercely competitive. And so, uh, yeah, so it was fun being around those coaches because really the coaches were so much of the biggies personality. I agree. Oops. How did you get, hooked up with the Villanova team did you did you start out when the Big East was starting did you do other other teams and then as as Villanova entered the Big East you became you know kind of our guy when you uh, traveled around uh, you know actually I covered all five teams for the longest time in fact I spent three years covering the 76ers after Julius got there so I was living with them it was 120 games you're all over the country and I said I don't really want to cover 120 games. I'd much rather cover the local teams because that's who I grew up with. I was very close to all of the coaches uh, and it, it was an easy transition. Uh, and Villanova was just starting 
to grow up. I mean, I remember Rolly's first year when he had the wild kittens and they struggled to get, to get winning records. Then by 78, they're playing for a chance to go to the final four against Duke. Right. Rolly, uh, I thought pre shot clock, pre three point shot was probably as good a coach at managing tempo and managing personnel that he had is anybody in the Big East. Sadly, Chuck, if he had stayed at Villanova and hadn't gone to UNLV, I think he would have been in the Smith Hall of Fame because yeah. take a look at the amount of coaches from the league who ended up in Springfield. Yeah, well, you know, that's a sore subject with the guys that played for him, that's for sure. You know, and uh, it was a tough one because that was right, like I think a, maybe a month before he passed, he got that phone call that he wasn't going to get in. So that was a that was a tough no, day. That, that crushed me. I remember he was a finalist that year. And yep. I think we were all kind of hoping, especially given his physical condition at the time. That it was, I remember going to the, the golf outing they had a month before. It was the last time I really – I had dinner with him. I actually – because we had actually done a TV show together back in the 80s. We were pretty good friends, and uh, it was the last time I saw him. I remember when they had the celebration for the 25th anniversary. Yeah. I remember when he took the Northwood job, and he decided to schedule a game against Villanova without telling Jay. And tell, tell that story. That, we're, on, we're on a plane down to Florida, um, uh, and and I'm I'm at uh, the Villanova Northwood game, and. Rolly, who refused to be outdone, decided he wanted to have his own Gucci row. So he invited Bobby Orr, right. and Billy Cunningham, and Chuck Daly. And they're all sitting in the front row. And Havlicek, too. Havlicek. Was just happened there. to be in the area. You know, that was, that, that was great stuff. I mean, I, I was lucky because when I was growing up, they didn't have anything like the Big East, Chuck. I mean, it was all independence. Every team had a good player. Now, can I can't ima imagine what it'd be like if Niagara had a Calvin Murphy, if St. Bonaventure had a Bob Lanier. Now they all would have been in the Big East or the ACC. But at the time, it was just a bunch of independents. And I think I have to give Dave Cavett a lot of credit. He thought the best way to advance basketball in the Northeast corridor was to form a league that was dedicated solely to basketball. And it turned out really well because they were able to pair up with ESPN at the time. And they had, uh, they created their own luxury model and they had teams that were all capable of competing for slots in the final four. Yeah. I mean, the year Villanova wins in that 85 year, year, Chuck, you had three Big East teams in Lexington. And you know what? You were really close to having a fourth because BC lost to Memphis in the uh, in the Sweet 16 in a game that they could have easily won. Yeah. You might have had four Big East teams down south, which would have just destroyed everyone else. Yeah, you know what's funny? You know what's funny, Hoops, is Coach Raftery, he yeah. talked exactly about those points. Exactly. He said – Specifically, he thought Syracuse and, and, and St. John's were going to give up a lot of victories that they had already guaranteed by their, their regional play and their regional schedule by going to the Big East. He thought that was a huge nugget entering the Big East, and they had to so, sort of implied it had to be talked into it a little bit. Well, you know, yeah, but, you know, the interest level really 
grew and the attendance level really grew. You know, everybody talks about Patrick Ewing and, uh, and Chris Mullen being the best two players in the traditional Big East. Well, the guy who probably made the league more than anybody else was Pearl Washington. Yeah. I mean, because he sold 31 tickets, 1,000 tickets on his own. Yeah. And he created his own legend every time he took the floor. I was up there for two games, I remember, at Syracuse. I was there for a Sunday game against Georgetown when the temperature was minus 18 and my car wouldn't start. Oh, that uh, never happens. I, <laughs> that never happens. No, no. I mean, they used, to, they used to call Georgetown Syracuse the social event of the winter. Uh, up there and then I was there for I think it was BC where Pearl drops the half court shot at the end and and guess what doesn't even stop to admire the ball going through the net just runs off the court like he knew it was going to happen oh yeah he's gone I I knew I wasn't smart enough to get out of the way because you had about 20 of the 35,000 people in the stands all storming the court on well, the court, yeah. Whoa, what is this? Yeah, those are fun times. They were, they were great. I mean, Syracuse was a fun team, and they were their rivalries with Georgetown were so great. I mean, yeah. I still remember, and you, you were, I guess, a senior in '85. Yeah. Uh, in the semifinal game where he and Patrick Pearl and Patrick Ewing almost get into it. Oh yeah, there was a huge swing and a miss on Patrick's part. Yeah. I mean, you know, all I mean. I mean that that could have been a TKO right there. Oh, if he if he connected, yeah, we Pearl, we'd be picking up his teeth still today. Yep. I look, I still remember the T-shirts on the eighth day God created Pearl. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and then the next year, ironically, Pearl takes over the game against Georgetown in '86 and 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 scores 21 when they win in overtime and they get to the finals and everybody said Syracuse is going to win a, a championship and then ironically Pearl gets his last shot blocked by Walter Burry I guess yeah, St. John's won it yeah. and St. John's ends up winning the game but the, the the league back then was so good you couldn't win unless you had five or six pros it, it was hard. Everybody had great players. It, it was the thing to do, I'm telling you. And it not, I still remember going to Georgetown and uh, and uh, and St. John's in 85. It was like Fraser Ali walked into the garden. It couldn't have gotten any bigger. I mean, the big signs out front. I mean, it was a major event. I mean, the Big East back then, if you got getting tickets, the Big East, if you were a normal fan, you better know somebody. You better know somebody that plays or something, right? Well, yeah. You know, I mean, it, it created, it was right? I, 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 I was lucky enough to cover every Big East tournament at the Garden. And I, and, I, and, and I covered a couple before then. I still remember, and this probably before you went there, Sonny, they had a, a Big East tournament at the Dome. Yeah. That was performing. And it was a tournament that Syracuse ended up winning, beating Villanova in the final. And the irony of the whole situation is the league itself did not have an automatic bid at the time. Right. And Syracuse didn't get a bid to the NCAA tournament after after winning the Big East. You talk about during 85 when, um, (laughs) during the Big East tournament, I think it was during the Big East tournament, it might have been during the regular season, but talk about the sweater game where where uh, Thompson came out 
and yeah. had the uh, coach Conaseca's sweater. I, I did. First of all, you you knew Coach Thompson pretty well. I'm, I'm sure mm-hmm. you interviewed him a bunch of times. No, we were friends. Did you, did you think he had that kind of sense of humor to do something like that? Uh, you know what he. He was the type of guy you go into an interview. If you listen to him, he'd always give you something interesting to write. The problem you had with John was Mary Fenlon was kind of the chaplain team, but she was also the house mother and she really limited contact with the players. So you had to make a decision at the end of games. You could listen to John for 10 minutes, or you could go in and try to get the players who didn't want to talk to you anyway. And uh, so half the time you ended up just deciding to listen to John. And he, he was a really interesting guy. That league was filled with American originals. It was, a, oh. it was unbelievable. I no. mean, there was a character that coached each team, each team, each yes. team had, you know, one name coach pretty much. And, and they were all had their own personalities. And we talked to, uh, to Bill Rafferty about, about when he was the president of the league, with all the Italian guys in the, in the room, all the <laughs> Italian coaches, he said, he said, the one thing they did do is they ate pretty good. So. Oh uh, uh, yeah. And they, and they, and they, and the big fight back then was who was going to get the money for, for, for the basketballs. They, they had signed a contract with uh, uh, somebody who made basketballs and the older coaches were very upset that the younger players, the younger coaches like Rick Pitino were going to get the same money as the coaches who started the league. And it just, you know, there was always a few one, one way or one way or another. Uh, I think Raleigh pretty much stayed out of it with the exception of Paul Evans uh, over the Bobby Martin situation. But, uh, 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 you know, Raleigh, I don't think a lot of people really got to know how close Raleigh was to his kids and how much he defended them. Um, I mean, he won a national championship when no one thought that they had a team that could get out of the first round. I mean, they were an eighth seed after that tournament and they end up having to play Dayton on Dayton's home floor and Dayton's a nine seed. And Harold Jensen wins the game with a layup in the last minute. And then Rowley coaches six perfect games. I mean, Yep. I mean, if the, the thing about Raleigh is he played that matchup and if you got the lead and there was four minutes left, the game was over because they never missed a big three throw that entire tournament. Yeah, I agree it with you. It was unbelievable. I mean, Michigan, Maryland, North Carolina, Memphis, Georgetown. Georgetown, they shoot 78 and they shoot 90 in the second half. Yeah. That was, um, I, it was like it was just yesterday that I was at that game. Chuck. Talk, talk about, you know, when we would travel back then for, um, for, for to the tournament, especially we were always going uh, not, not commercial. We had a private plane or whatever. We had a rented, you know, um, talk about traveling with, with the guys and being around the team. You got to know them pretty well. There was about a good handful of you guys that were around all the time. It, it kind of was cool. Cause you knew all the guys we, we would talk on the plane or whatever. So talk, talk about the, the best part about it for me. Uh, we had a PM paper, Chuck. So our deadline was four o'clock. So you could spend time in the locker room getting to know the kids. And the other thing that happened was they all stayed for four years back then. Yeah. I mean, you know, no, I mean, now every, every good player seems to have a, 
have his uh, be halfway out the door before the their freshman year is halfway over. They're looking at mock drafts. I still remember uh, the Tim Thomas year. I mean, he kind of checked out in December and just started watching and just started reading the mock drafts. He was and as soon as the season ended, when they lost to Cal, he was out of there. Never came yeah. back. I mean, but when you were there, everybody stayed for four years. And I think that's one of the things that Jay is very good at getting players who stay for extended periods of time. He almost does it in its own way, like a mid-major coach where the players stay and they all get better as time progresses. Yeah. I got, I got to ask you a couple of questions now. Sure. It, when, when you were talking and you talked about interviewing coach Thompson, remember the Hoya paranoia yep. surrounding the program. <laughs> As, as a person in your position, I know you talked about it. You had kind of limited access. I think we all kind of knew that. But uh, did that impact you? I mean, did they sort of almost keep you at an arm's length as well? Or how did you that know, work? I, I, pretty much. Although I was one of the few writers, I think, that actually got along with John. But whenever they would go on the road for the NCAA tournament, they'd stay two states away. And they, I mean, the first time they played in, uh, in a final four, the game was in New Orleans against Carolina. They stayed in Mississippi. So, I mean, they, I mean, when they played in Lexington, they must've stayed closer to Louisville than Lexington. Yeah, I think they stayed in I mean, Louisville. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was all about like, let's keep everything between us and nobody else. And I, I, there was that paranoia. I think it was a shame because I think part of the college uh, experience is getting to know people and having to deal with the media. It just helps you grow up a little bit. And uh, the one thing about Villanova is they never created access barriers. Everybody was always available. Well, I think from everything I've heard from people in your, in your position, though, when they, when they talked to Coach Thompson, he always gave them his time. Like yep. he didn't, he didn't shut him out. He might've had, listen, I'm walking to the bus. Let's walk, let's talk. Well, we, I, you know, I get, actually got to know him better once he left Georgetown because he had a radio show and he wanted me on all the time. So it was easy for me and he was doing TV too. So I'd run into him a lot of the games. I still remember in 2006, he's doing color for CBS and, uh, uh, Georgetown is playing to go to the final four up at the Meadowlands and he loses it. He had to get up out of his seat and just walk away. And I don't think he called a second. I mean, I don't think he called the last minute of the game at all because the son was coaching. So yeah, no, he, I mean, very, very strong family ties with his sons. I don't remember ever really seeing his wife, but I do remember, you know, I do remember how close he was to John, to to his son John, and uh, how happy he was after that. I mean, this a sad part, Sonny, is we're st finally we're starting to lose the first part of that right. generation. Uh, D. Road passed away this year, and uh, mm -hmm. John passed away this year, and uh, I still remember how much in shock I was when Dave passed away a few years ago. I mean, yeah. it happens. I mean, Joe Mullaney. I mean. Times, time, time, times, times kind of go move on. And um, you kind of re recognize that you were part of something really special. When you played in the league, Sonny, it was, 
it was almost like every team, the teams at the top of the biggies, say the first five, they could all be in the top 10 at any given moment. They were that good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, now about your, for yourself too, as one of the challenges for yourself, right? You're pen and paper, you said, right? Right. So as the, 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 the media has changed, how have you been able to adapt to? Well, I got lucky. You know, I, <laughs> I met a lot of coaches who are, uh, were in their prime back when they used to be counselors at Five Star Camp uh, up in Honesdale. Mm-hmm. I got to know a lot of those guys now. I would hate to be a younger writer now trying to get coaches because, you know, there's a lot of barriers and a lot of times you get SIDs who are more interested in protecting the coach or doing what the coach wants as opposed to getting to know the writers. And a lot of coaches never really get to know the writers now. And the other problem is a, a lot of the locker rooms now are closed. They used to be open all the time. Uh, and you basically get the kids at a podium and you very rarely get stuff that everyone else doesn't have. This year in particular, because every interview is a Zoom interview. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you never really get a coach by himself if you're covering a team. They hook them up and, you know, look, when the game's over, they want to get out of there as fast as possible, especially given the uh, uh, times that we're living in. So, you know, they, they try to set it up, do it. And um, uh, the players want to get in and out. And frankly, there's not a lot of time, even if you want to write, because the first thing they want to do is disinfect the, the building. So the only writers this year that have really gotten into cover Bill and Ova Maybe the two beat guys, Chuck, uh, uh, Joe Giuliano from the Inquirer yeah. and Terry Tui from uh, Delaware County, and maybe Dan Gelson, who works for AP. Aside from that, they've really limited it. I, I think they may have, they may allow upwards to 450 people in the building at one time. Most of them are, they, uh, for a while, they weren't even letting family in. Now they're letting family in. But right. that included everybody. It included the teams, the coaches, anybody who worked maintenance in the building, anybody who did radio and television. So there wasn't a lot of room for anybody else. Right. And, you know, I one of the best things about covering college basketball for me is going and spending time with the coaches afterwards. Because... I've reached a point where you cover somebody over 15 years, you're probably either going to be friends or enemies. And, uh, uh, you know, you, you build friendships up with, with, with guys and you're happy for their success. And uh, you can't, you can't have that same experience now. So if I'm a younger guy now in this business, it becomes more of a job. And a lot of guys, Sonny, actually do the work from home. They watch the game on TV and yeah. just turn into a Zoom, just turn on, on on the Zoom interview afterwards. And yeah. they don't even go to the arena. I, I got to ask you a question. I remember sure. during my time, the Big East was in jeopardy because of the football question. Right. Do you remember that? And was that something that you guys were, I mean, not making a story, but were you guys aware? I mean, what was your thoughts about that period of time? Because well, I do remember you know, back in Pittsburgh. 
they had to make a decision. Right. Okay? Yeah. Penn State was talking about forming an all sports league. Yep. Unless they invited them in. And the thing about Penn State is they wanted to, a home for their basketball team, but they didn't want to share any of the football money at all with the rest of the league. So what Dave did is he invited Pitt instead. So it now knocks Penn State out of commission. They end up really staying in the Atlantic 10 until they joined the Big Ten. Now, back in 2005, when you started seeing defections and teams started leaving for the ACC because they had a better TV contract with football and football tends to move the, uh, move the needle maybe more than anything else, you know, everything started to change. I'll give the big, I'll give the big East credit for hanging in there with basically a one sport league. I mean, the irony is Sonny, when you look at it, Syracuse and Pitt and Boston college haven't really moved the needle since they've gone to the ACC. It's not like they've won any championships in football or basketball. They played for championships. They've been in BC has been in a final in basketball. They were in a final in football, but it's not like Syracuse or Pitt have really been a final and West Virginia has good basketball, but football, I mean, the closest team that they to, to West Virginia is 10 hours drive away if you're a fan and so you're not really going to hop into a car and go to see a football game at Iowa State Mm -hmm. it really has changed things look I liked it better when you had geographic geographical rivalries oh yeah where where the parents could see the kids play on the road I mean I still remember Syracuse would play and Connecticut would play games down at the, at the Spectrum or, or, or in Wells Fargo. I mean, you'd see a truckload of people driving in from those sites just because they knew they could get a ticket to watch the game. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, Syracuse, when Jerry McNamara was in, they just load up the buses from Scranton. <laughs> they did. They filled Route 81 with. Oh, my God. And that was the first time we got some of the Penn State fans to Syracuse. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> He's the original Jim Rod, anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, Dick, let me ask you this: How much did um, the advent of social media af- affect you? In that, when when you interviewed a kid in the '80s and '90s, you know, in the Big East, say, um, they did they give you better copy to work with because they were excited to see what they had to say the next day in the paper, versus a, a kid now. Um, might not give you the same kind of copy that you would have um, based on the fact that he's trying now to create his own brand on social media? That's a really good question. When I did it, uh, I used to take a tape recorder in the locker room. Right. So you could never make a mistake. And I, I I had my own set of rules. I would never quote anybody over dinner and I would never quote anybody in a bar. You may, I mean, you have to establish your own credibility in this business, okay? And kids have to know they can trust you and know that you're not gonna, you're not gonna scribble something down when they're just talking to a friend. I don't think it's fair to them. The one thing that a lot of people don't remember, these are kids. These are 19, 20 year old kids. Sometimes the, I mean, and and there's and they're still learning. <clears throat> it means to be an adult. And a lot of times, uh, if, as it, 
with me, as long as kids are decent kids and don't think they're already pros, I'll treat them like college players. I won't use the, the cheap shot. Unfortunately, now with social media, there's a lot of people who are taking a lot of cheap shots on Twitter. They're writing stuff they would never write for a paper. I mean, when 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 I worked before the advent of social media, and I and I have I have a Twitter account now, but you know, we used to have to. It had to be true in order to be able to print. Now it just has to be first, right? And I think that I think that and then that bothers me a little bit, and I feel for a lot of the kids. Look. I don't trust half the people in, in the business now, the younger ones, younger guys who are just coming up because they're trying to make a name for themselves. A lot of times if they're covering college, they think it's a waste up on the way to the pros. And a lot of times you don't always get people that you can, that, that, that you can trust and you find, and you find kids starting to button up a little bit. And frankly, a a lot of schools have reached the point where they actually have media sessions where they teach you how to deal with interviews. Yeah, I remember that. I remember, I remember watching University of Kentucky. They had classes in how to take and how to speak, you know, how to, you know, how to basically present yourself. And I think to John Thompson's credit, I think by protecting his kids, he allowed them to focus on basketball. He didn't have to worry about some of that other stuff. And because because well, there's nothing like a kid making a mistake and saying something that they are going to regret or the coach says, oh, my goodness, you know, I got to defend this, you know. Yeah, it's funny. I spent a year at Kentucky. I was really the first writer to go behind um, the, uh, the the Pentagon doors and get in because they never let any writers inside. And Rick was the coach, Patino at the time. And it was the year that they uh, lost to Duke in the Leitner shot. And they had great kids. And they the kids they had were basically the kids who stayed after the probation and Jamal Mashburn, who lost about 30 pounds after he arrived at Kentucky and became a great player. They were, they were, they were great kids, but you know, it's like anything else. They have to learn how to trust you, Sonny. I mean, it's not just, you know, you have to earn kids trust. uh, I think now I don't know that people know the kids well enough that kids will, will trust them or maybe the kids don't care what they say. I don't know. Now in, in the, in the big East, when it was really cooking, right. So 83, 84 in those, in those days. And like you said, four or five pros on a team, what were some of the biggest memorable games that you covered and for whatever reasons, like I, I, like I saw an article you had written about, you know, your top, you know, the, you know, the six overtime game, the, you know, the, the you know, that, that game is still, I was still amazed by that game because People actually, they used to last train out of the garden used to be 1130. And if you were going back to Philadelphia, people would take the train home, get off, and it was still in the fourth overtime. (laughs) I mean, so they get home and watch the end of it. It was unbelievable. The game ended at 121. And I still remember we actually made some additions in Queens and, 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 and uh, Manhattan for the next day. It was unbelievable. They, they held the paper 
for for that because it was one of the all-time great games ever played. Most of the games you see, remember, come during the uh, the Big East tournament. But you know, I'll always be most touched by the trip I had with Villanova through the national tournament because it was so unexpected. Hey, look, two weeks before the tournament starts, they're playing Pittsburgh. They're down 25. And Chuck can tell you this, Rowley benches all the starters. Yeah. And I'm thinking this is going to be a short season. I mean, I still remember the, I, I almost remember the last day before they played Georgetown. Georgetown was a heavy favorite, like 13 points gone in Rollies the day before saying we have to play a perfect game just to have a chance. The day that happens, Al Severance, who was the former Villanova coach and the head of the business department is down there watching the game and he dies. So that immediately creates its own problem. I still remember being down there and, 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 and the kids having to live through that. And I also remember Chuck, Jake Nevin was in a wheelchair. He was dying from, yep. uh, uh, from Lou Gehrig's disease. And he was a beloved figure on, on, on campus. People loved him. And he was the one guy who could control Rolly, by the way. <laughs> Probably that's was the guy who told him to stay when he had the, the offer from the Nets. That's a they're, fact. they're playing the game, and I still remember to this day. Late, I, mean, well, I remember you getting into it. Was it Reggie Williams? But Reggie, and, yeah, yeah. You you decided to take on Reggie, or he decided to take on you. That was, yeah. <laughs> you know what? That's when we knew Villanova. That's when people knew Villanova had a chance because you didn't back down. Yeah. Right before half that happened. Yeah, and he and he used that uh, in the locker room, uh, you know, to come out, and we came out and shot nine for ten, and you know, and we were the only team in the tournament that had our own good luck uh, leprechaun, you know, in Jake Nevin. He was he was a special guy, and uh, it was very special, and still is to those guys on that championship team. The the one thing about that tournament, I think if Villanova was paired against St. John's, St. John's, I mean. They might not have won the championship, but St. John's the only team Villanova couldn't beat. They were right there with Georgetown in the two regular season games. I mean, they knew how to play Georgetown. Eddie Pinckney had no fear of playing against Patrick Ewing. It was unbelievable. And and the rest of the kids on that team weren't affected by the press. And that was back in the day when you basically had one ball handler. And Gary McLean in that game only had two turnovers. Uh, but I still remember right toward the end of the game, Harold Jensen's fouled and he's going to foul the, to shoot two, three throws that are critical shots. He's before he goes, he goes over and pats Jake Nevin on the head and says, these two are for you, Jake. And yeah. he makes those shots. And uh, after the game, Eddie Pinckney and uh, Gary McLean run over to press row, jump up on press row and start screaming April fools, April fools. Cause the game was played on April 1st. I mean, I, I, I still remember hitching a ride back on the team playing. I still remember the, uh, the parade when I got up because I, I got John Feinstein from the Washington post on, 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 on the plane with us. And it was just, it was a magical time because I never thought I would cover a team that won the national championship. To me, that was the greatest. But, you know, every team, Sonny, had their turn in the final four. I mean, yeah. Oh, there in, in 87, Seton Hall was there in 89. Yeah. I mean, Connecticut for championships. Three. Yeah. I mean, 
it was unbelievable. I mean, if you played in that league, one of your teams was probably going to have a shot to go to the to the championship game. Yeah. Patino brought Providence back in 2007. Yeah. DJ and uh, Seton Hall, right? With Andrew yeah, Dayton. In 89. They got to the finals. No, I mean, and, and so you got used to, it was easy. You had basically had a home team to follow. I mean, it was, it was great. I mean, you know, whenever Syracuse, I still remember when, when Syracuse won in 2003 with Carmelo. Yeah. I mean, and him getting 31 in the final against Kansas. I mean, you know, it was great because these guys were all local guys. Uh, you, you know, Dick, you need a little better memory. I mean, it sounds like you're struggling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I can't remember Jesse. what I had for lunch yesterday. You're He's, rattling off names and numbers, Dick. That's impressive. You can tell me what floorboard he dribbled off of. I would perfectly believe you. Holy cow. I mean, I, I, I love that. This is awesome. I, I really love the league, and I, I – I still remember Jimmy uh, getting finally getting to a final four in 87. And I thought that he had his best chance to win in 87. And I guess this is the three throws and smart hits a jumper at the buzzer to beat him. And that just crushed everybody from Syracuse who really were, were, I mean, they they would have celebrated forever in Marshall street. Yeah. I I was at that final four watching it and I was sitting at the top row of the expandable bleachers. I remember sitting there for about 20 minutes after the game, just like in shock. And uh, Howard's a good friend of mine. And, you know, and he was, you know, right there too on that shot. So it was, it was hard, but look at that team. Look at the pros on that team. Oh, I know. Listen, I mean, you know, I mean, you had Cycling and, and, and Coleman. Cycling, Coleman, Billy Owens. I yeah, mean. you couldn't play unless you had three pros up front. Oh, that was incredible. Yeah, it's a great time. No, and, that's, and that's the way it was every year. And the thing that amazes me about the Big East, Sonny, is it, it's kind of, I mean, I thought there really would be a drop-off after all these teams win. And then Villanova goes out and wins two out two out of three in 16 and 18. And in 18, they weren't even challenged. They win every game by double figures, and they shoot double-figure threes. They had 18 threes against Kansas in the national semifinals playing on an elevated stage. And that oh, was- no, it was crazy. I was, at, I was at both of those games. That's I why like the Villanova that. people love me. <laughs> <laughs> you pick you well, you pick good games to come to. Well, uh, 2016, I think they'll be able to dine out on that on that shot forever. <laughs> 16. <laughs> well, I think that's a good place to cut it, guys. I, uh, Dick, thank you so so much for coming, and not not only for for being on part of the show today, but for for all that you've done for for Coach Mass and and the, and the Wildcats for all these years. You've always been fair. And we've never, I don't know anybody that's ever gotten misquoted from you. Um, it goes, and it goes to your rules that you said uh, earlier about, you know, in the bar or uh, or at dinner. Um, I mean, it, you've been a gentleman all these years and we've really enjoyed having you around and being part of our group. So thank you for that. And thank you for being part of the show today. Uh, listen, it's my pleasure. It's so nice talking to both you guys. And thanks for being a part of history because you, you are. it. <laughs> thanks, so, brother. So that's, you've been listening to the Big East Rewind with our special guest today, Dick Hoops Weiss and Rich Samini. I am Chuck Everson, and my co-host, as always, is Sonny Sparrow.